This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Skull Splitter Dice. Head to SkullSplitterDice.com slash Tome Show and get a 15% off coupon code. It's also supported by listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and DM's Guild affiliate links and for becoming patrons over at Patreon.com slash The Tome Show. Welcome to the Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, number 666, oh no, wait, okay, actually it's 328, we're going to H-E-L-L Hockey Sticks in this episode as we review Boulder's Gate Descent into Avernus. So it's H-E-L-L and Hockey Sticks? Yes. That's a lot of L's. Man, that's a hellish yeah, amount of L's. Fine, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a hell of a name. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hell of a name. Uh, that's right. Well, the, those, what, what Jeff did to keep editing it as we went through the synthetic panic. Like, come on, come on. Well, and that, that, those, those dulcet tones of this hellish group that we brought in for our podcasting pleasure uh, this episode includes uh, – a guest known across the plains as the Dark Secret. It is the Tome Show social media manager, Ishmael Alvarez. Welcome back, sir. Hello. And next up, we have someone who we're pretty sure traded their soul to become a D&D lore master from Tribality.com and our very own Edition Wars. It's Brandis Stoddard. Hi, y'all. Happy to be here. And also rejoining us, I'm excited to say, is the brand new Archduke of Avernus. Uh, once that pesky Zerial was out of the way, here from the, the Last Refuge show, it's the return of DM Jazzy Hands, Ohinio Vargas. Hey, everybody, don't tell Bell he still wants that position. Yeah, but he can't <laughs> have it. I think there are going to be some gremlins and devils here tonight. Uh, <laughs> Maybe some demons. We'll see. Uh, this book is the latest mega adventure from Wizards of the Coast, wherein the heroes start in Baldur's Gate in the Forgotten Realms, and for the first time in 5th edition, head into the Outer Plains to adventure on the first layer of hell itself. It's a story of survival, maybe? A story of redemption? Eh. A story that involves Mad Max-like themes? Yes. And a story about cute, flying, miniature elephants. Before we get too far into that, however, I want to mention our sponsor, Skull Splitter Dice. If you head to SkullSplitterDice.com, you'll find a coupon code uh, that will give you 15% off. Or SkullSplitterDice.com slash Tome Show, I should say. Uh, and they'll let you, and they'll, then they'll know that you came from us. Uh, they sent us some samples of dice, uh, and some of us have also spent some money buying dice. And I think, Tracy, you got some dice from them. So what did you end up getting? I got the Witch's Runestones. Uh, I actually misplaced my code, so I just bought them. Uh, they're really cool, shiny bronze with orange lettering. Uh, I will say those points on the, the D4s are serious, are awesome, though. Uh, and then I also got a um, one of their premium blind bags, which had a bunch of uh, very colorful, uh, pretty plastic dice, and then one uh, metal die with it. Did you find other, other? I mean, other than the D four, D fours are always the the caltrops of dice, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> have you found that the other of their dice uh, in that set? Did they have pretty sharp edges as well? They were pretty crisp. Okay. 
it was good, but yeah, I just yeah, I'm, I'm just, just curious. That right away. I'm, I'm just curious because I have several sets of metal dice now, and uh, most of them have really sort of crisp, sharp edges. But I but the set that I got from Skull Splitter actually has nice rounded edges, beveled edges that I thought was um, was actually really nice. It's it's much it's a much nicer feel in my hand. That's no, nothing poking me in the in the flesh, you know. <laughs> so yeah, um, and and a couple of them were a little beveled. The I think the D six was particularly beveled, and then the ten and eight, uh, not eight the the two tens. Yeah. So I, I thought was something I thought was a, a nice touch that I haven't seen in other uh, metal dice. But in any case, people should check them out. Skullsplitterdice.com slash Tomeshow. Look, mate. Three generations ago, my ancestors forged the Great Blade Skullsplitter. With it, they won the Goblin Wars, the Hobgoblin Wars, the Orc Wars, the Demon Wars, the Elf Wars, and the Gelatinous Cube Wars. And that one doesn't even make sense because they don't have skulls. Now... All these years later, the legend of the Great Skull Splitter grows. Offering dice to help you create your own legends, Skull Splitter Dice makes the highest quality dice beautiful dice of both plastic and metal. Want to roll bones that look like bones? Or just something with enough heft to split the skulls of your enemies? Skull Splitter Dice has that and more. Check them out now at SkullsplitterDice.com slash Tomeshow and use the coupon code Tomeshow with all little letters and get 15% off. Now get out there, split some skulls, and build some legends. All right, now on to the review. First up, full disclosure, I am working from a review copy. Uh, I have a review copy of the standard uh, cover, and I know Tracy has the special edition cover because I sent it to her. Um, but I also have a, re- uh, a review copy through the through D&D Beyond as well. So um, anybody else working from review copies, or, or Tracy and I the only lucky ones that didn't have to pay? I am working uh, from a review copy. In fact, one of my three review copies um, Sean cool. sent me his limited edition, and then uh, I also, to my surprise and delight, received my own uh, standard and limited from uh, uh-huh. Watsy. Very good. Uh, I am D&D Beyond supports my podcast with uh, Insider Access, so I had the version from them for free. I don't have a physical copy that I'm working from. So you read the whole thing digitally? I did. Okay. I jumped back and forth. I read some of it digitally and some of it physically, and I tended to be able to go a lot faster physically. Um, but digital has its advantages too. <laughs> so yeah, I will actually say that's not entirely true. I was in Powell's in Portland and read most of the Path of Demons there in a hard copy. Uh, <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, the one thing I really wish the D and D Beyond app had is the ability uh-huh. to highlight. Um, that would be killer. For yeah. Me. So yeah, you know. I've thought about that. I've thought about like markup things too for yeah. maps and stuff. That would be yeah. fantastic. But so D and D Beyond, folks. I hope you're listening. Get on that. Come oh, on. I'm I'm sure it's on that list somewhere. <laughs> I'm, sure, the I'm, I'm positive list. it is. Yeah, I'm positive it is. And um, oh, I was just gonna say I bought my copy for what it's worth. You bought your copy? Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that was not intentional. We did purposely, you know, seek out people to be on the show that all got review copies. Uh, but here we are. So uh, bear that in mind as we talk about this adventure uh, and how that might be influencing our opinions on things. But I like to think after all these years, it doesn't have uh, too much of an influence on my opinion. So let's go ahead and talk about Descent into Avernus. Um, first of all, 
Tracy gave sort of a brief summary of the adventure early on, a really brief summary, just that it starts in Baldur's Gate and you go into Avernus. Um, were we correct in that this is the first time 5th edition has gone to the Outer Plains? Or am I forgetting I something? I think about that since she said it, and I, I think so, but it sounds like Brandis might disagree. Uh, I think we've gone to some nearby plains in um, Mad Mage, I don't think you actually go to any outer planes in Mad Mage. Well, and that's I had to be I had to be particular when I wrote that part of yeah, the script yeah, to beca- yeah. because Ravenloft is technically in another plane, right? It's a demi plane. Right. Oh, sure. But it's a near plane. I think. It is because I, I thought that same exact thing. I'm like, well, Ravenloft, but no, that's like an AJ. Well, and this is a level of nerditry that 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 kind of goes. It's the outer plane of nerditry. I would right. Say. <laughs> uh. Uh, the far plane, yeah, the far realm. All right, yeah. yeah. Well, and I and I, that's still I think important or notable that this is the first time we've gone to the outer planes because the outer planes have a, definitely, to me anyway, have a very different feel and theme um, compared to the nearer planes, whether it be Ravenloft or you know the Feywild or whatever, uh, or even the elemental planes. Um, so it, it, it's important to me to note anyway because I'm the kind of person who really likes outer planner sort of storylines, and the other stuff is kind of just okay to me. So nice. So let's get into this a little bit. Let's let's. Who can tell me first of all a little bit of what the story is that this book tells? At least the 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 you know the elevator pitch version. Well, the real quick elevator pitch version is that uh, it's a story of, well, (laughs) it has the potential to be a story of redemption uh, about a fallen angel and you get to mess about in hell uh, playing on really awesome big machines, playing Mad Max, like we've all said several times, uh, and ultimately have the opportunity to redeem this for this uh, fallen angel or or not. Well, and it's it's arguably a story of redemption in other ways because they introduce Back in the Gazetteer section, uh, where there's some player options, they introduced this idea of the Dark Secret, um, which right. Tracy and I did a whole episode about dark this Dark Secret and, and secrets in general in games. Um, and, and so th- there's this idea of this sort of dark, original sort of party sin, and so there's an opportunity for, for elevation and redemption for the players as well through this this story. Uh, right, and also you're trying to literally redeem or win back uh, mm. the whole city of Elturel. Right. So yeah, so the, the gist is the entire city of Elturel has been pulled into hell. Um, and for those of us who are, are Forgotten Realms geeks, there's there's sort of some some storyline behind that, right? There, throughout the editions, Elturel um, at one point was conquered by vampire lords and then the vampire lords were eliminated because this this like second sun this orb of of daylight uh, appeared over the city and and banished all of the undead um and then and and I only bring that all up because that lore actually plays into descent into avernus because it turns out that it was Zeriel, uh lord of the the first layer of hell avernus um who gifted the um the companion which is the, what the second sun thing is called 
gifted it to El Terrell as all as part of her wicked plan to use that to draw the entire city and curse it and draw it into into Avernus. Uh, so so the oh, but that's all background, right? The adventure starts with the players in in or going into Baldur's Gate, whether they're from there or they've come with all the refugees that survived the the disappearance of El Terrell or whatever. Um, and from there, they sort of get embroiled in this family drama. Is that fair to say? Yes. Right. Yep. So remind me, where, where do they – how do they first get involved in the family drama? Uh, so the, the, the current leader of the Flaming Fist press gangs them into investigating and the investigation pretty – unavoidably leads to you know getting embroiled embroiled in the family drama but the very first encounter of the book is the pcs getting press ganged essentially at sword point into becoming sort of um investigators or troubleshooters Mm -hmm. and the flaming fists are sort of the the horrible corrupt um law enforcement of baldur's gate baldur's gate's not a very like happy place and hasn't been for a very long time. Right. They, they really, really darkened the whole mood of how they're presenting Baldur's Gate for this book. Um, like, I think there's a, a pretty strong trend line edition over edition and event over event of Baldur's Gate being a worse and worse place. Um, but I think that this is pretty consciously, trying to draw in fans of the Baldur's Gate video games. Mm-hmm. Well, and I don't know that... First of all, I, I, they actually sort of address why that's happening. Like, there's a narrative reason in this adventure why Baldur's sure. Gate is getting darker and darker, and that's that there is this shield that has captured a demigod-slash-pit fiend <laughs> that is corrupting the entire city. Um, and we can get into that a little bit. Um but I'll, I, if I think back to the murder in Baldur's Gate adventure that came out during the playtest for 5th edition, um, I don't know that this is any darker than that, is it? Because it was pretty dark then. Uh, that's fair. I have not actually read um, Murder. Um, my last real contact with Baldur's Gate is, I guess, the end of 3.5 because okay. I skipped so much of the realms in 4th. Um, I've sort of tried to go back and catch up, but it's... Uh, hard to get that mentally placed, you know what I mean? Sure. So, so yeah, so they get press ganged into investigating a, a, a thing, and then discovered the what is it? The one of the members of the this noble family was involved in all of this, right? And this noble, this noble sort of leads to, hey, you should go check out what my brother's doing over here, and then that leads to you should totally like infiltrate the entire villa of the family and and find out what they're all up to, and it just sort of snowballs uh, from there, and that's where within the the dungeon below the villa you find. Um, the MacGuffin that's going to eventually get you into Avernus. It, you're going to find there the um, the shield that we talked about that I mentioned earlier. The that holds Gargoth, who, if you looked at earlier editions of the Forgotten Realms, was listed as a a lesser god, um, but now is a pit fiend trapped in a shield. 
Uh, and I'm curious what people thought about the this sort of first opening chapter, the whole the, the Baldur's Gate section of this adventure. Because because I had some thoughts, but I want to hear from you guys first. Uh, I have a few thoughts. I literally just got done running the first chapter yesterday. Um, and I liked it. I thought it was a really good way to bring in uh, Baldur's Gate. Uh, there, a common complaint I've heard is uh, people have said they like the Baldur's Gate part so much they wish that it was its own thing. They probably could have done, and I'm sure they didn't want to do it, but they could have done like a Baldur's Gate um you know, whatever they would call it. It would have been like the Dragon Heist version of Baldur's Gate, where it would have been one through five. And then the Avernus part could have been like the Mad Mage part. Um, But people loved Baldur's Gate so much that they wished that they could spend more time there in that kind of like, this is a gritty place where we can do all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, Obviously, it's not a lovable place, but people people liked it pretty well from from what I've heard and at my table. Um, One thing that disappointed me was um, it almost seemed like a cop out to have the uh, spoiler alert that the shield, I mean we're we're reviewing an adventure, uh, the, the know, adventure we're, so we're gonna spoil it yeah we're gonna spoil the hell out of it but the fact that the shield um, is the reason Baldur's Gate is that that it is the way that it is it doesn't just kind of take away the agency of the people in the city and being like you know sometimes people just suck um, but it, mm. it, it also um, makes me think like well. Well, if the if if this adventure is taken as kind of like oh this actually happened, then presumably um, Baldur's Gate is gonna be better now because the shield is gone. Maybe not overnight, but eventually it'll be the trajectory will maybe like, turn around. Yeah, or it and will it continue to su- or it'll continue to suck, and you'll get that storyline of you know some sometimes people are just horrible, right? Yeah, and I'd be okay with that. <laughs> I mean, I would expect the the presence of the Dead Three to also be really darkening the city. Um, it, the video games really make the point that um, Bale has a ton of presence here, and like, all kinds of people could be, you know, Bale spawn or connected to him in some way. So, like, you're talking about God of Murder, right? Right, yeah. the, the God of Murder who is. Uh, in this book, um, mortal adjacent, um, but still able to grant spells and do some divine stuff. Right. Well, because it's 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 which which are the three? Is it uh, Ball? Yeah. Uh, Miracle. Miracle and Bane. and Bane. Yeah, and all all three of which died during the the time of troubles. If you want to go back to the the big event that brought in second edition. Um. Yeah. But Bane came back. Um, oh, yeah, Bane did come back, and Ball came um, back in then, Murder in Baldur's oh. Gate. Right, and, uh, and was, those three have always been connected in Realms lore, going back to the time that they were uh, mortal adventurers who took the three facets of death from Dragal. Mm. Ishmael, you're going to say something. Oh, I was just going to say, and then Ball, of course, featured really prominently in one of the Baldur's Gate video games, um, which right. I'm I'm blanking on right now, but it's like the throne of Ball. I think um, he was like, like a big figure there, and that's why they kind of tie Well, not why, but one of the things that ties him car- closely to uh, Baldur's Gate. So I'm, I'm curious what... So the, the story kind of goes... You you infiltrate this this the the what is it the temple or whatever of the dead three where the cult is, 
which is what you were press ganged into doing, or what the players were press ganged into doing. And from there, you meet one of the members of the noble family who's like, hey, you should go over to this, um, it's basically, what, a tavern or whatever uh, in a ship uh, and go yeah. check and go check out what my brother's up to. Um, and from there, it's like, oh, you should, you know, don't don't come after me. You should go see what the rest of the family is doing, right? Uh, and I don't know. To me, that felt – the connective tissue between those sections feels a little bit weak. Uh, and I'm curious what your experiences were. If, uh, I know, Ishmael, you said you just played it or if, what other people thought when they were reading it. I don't want to jump all over this, but uh, I, please, uh, someone else uh, uh, fill in for me. Well, I'll just say I, I did. I will say I read the I read the whole adventure, um, but I am going to be starting a campaign, uh, a streamed campaign of the adventure starting in Avernus. Uh, so everything that happened in Baldur's Gate and El Trail for me was just sort of like uh, interesting backstory for whatever I was going to create. <laughs> so I definitely read it with a very different sort of uh, purpose than I, I feel like probably the rest of you did. That said, uh, yeah, I totally agree, Jeff. It, it felt a little weak. What to me, what it managed to accomplish was uh, sort of in one connected storyline in that their family, it sort of gave us an idea of Baldur's Gate in action, right? This one family is into so many different terrible things, right? And the family is turning each other in and turning on each other. So like interfamily strife. Um, it just felt like it like bounced around to all of the major points of Baldur's Gate uh, and gave us a feel for the tone of the city pretty efficiently, uh, despite the, yes, I agree, connective tissue issues. Brandis, Tracy? Uh so, so I just want to say that I think um, writing investigations is super hard, and it's a different skill than um, – with with all love to the writers of this book, I don't mean to throw any of them under a bus. Um, it's a different skill than core D&D writing. Uh, and, and so I think that there may still be some things to learn there. I did not – when I was reading this, I did not pick up on any weaknesses in connective tissue – because that's that's not the kind of thing that's easy for me to see unless I'm doing just an incredibly deep read. Um, so, I mean, it, it's it's very kind of uh, A then B then C uh, investigative process uh, mm-hmm. rather than maybe a you know, here's two different places that you could go look and those might open up a few different places depending on what you find. Uh, more freeform investigation. The the adventure has big freeform areas, but they aren't Baldur's Gate. Well, and so here's here's where I could totally see a group of players not connecting from point A to point B to point C, is that when they're conscripted, when they're press ganged into into you know into the Flaming Fist, it's specifically to look into. Uh, murders associated with the dead three. Right. Which you do at point A, and then you can kind of just skip point B and C, and they could go back to the Flaming Fist and say, okay, we found it, we figured it out. You know, and that uh, I feel like that there's, I want to push a little further to have them continue moving through that narrative, I think. So when, I mean, when I, when I ran the game, uh, the very first thing I said it was I, I described El Terrell kind of disappearing. It was kind of like the that cinematic movie trailer uh, moment where 
I'm like, okay, you know, just imagine these people seeing like the second sun snuff out and all of a sudden they're in hell or whatever. It was a little bit more dramatic than that. Um, but then uh, it segued nicely to when they find, and I can't remember his name, but they find the first of the sons of the Duke um, who blatantly says, hey, my mom's going to try and, and throw Baldur's Gate into hell just like just like uh, Elturel did. Um, uh, please stop her. Like, you know, I don't love my family anymore. They sent me here to die. All this crazy stuff is happening. And I think the one thing that might stop a group from like following through on that would be maybe disbelief or like lack of caring. But um, the, as I ran that game, it, the the people at my table at least did a pretty good job of just following the line. It was, it was more of a, a tour guide uh, led exhibition of Baldur's Gate than it was like a vacation at Baldur's Gate. So it was kind of like, okay, um, here's your curated view of Baldur's Gate. First, you're going to, get ordered around by the guards, then you're going to be sent into the de- Dev Cultist Temple, then you're going to go talk to the, the jerk on the boat, and then th- from there you're going to end up at the at the villa. And so it was just this kind of like, it was kind of rapid succession, and I was doing my best to kind of move from point A to B to C, uh, which worked out. Because um, then, really, the, the, one, the only other thing that people commented is, uh, when are we going to get to hell? And I finally did it yesterday, which was fun, but it was... All of this was window dressing to the to the main event. It was all uh, appetizers. They, they, yeah, I mean, they were eager to go to hell. Tracy and and just to help, because um, they do have flowcharts throughout the book. They break it up into five chapters, by and large, on the high level, and a tale of two cities, which is the part that includes Baldur's Gate itself, is for characters levels one through four, and then Alterell is five to six. Uh, Avernus is seven to ten. The Sword of Zeriel is 11 and 12, and then Escape is 13 and higher. So you spend a lot of potentially like more levels in that first Baldur's Gate part, but there's it's a lot of, um, you know, as, as we were saying, go do this, this, and this, so that way you get enough information <laughs> to go to hell. Well, you spend a lot of levels there, but in my mind, levels one through three, you you move from one to three pretty quick. Like within three sessions, a lot of times you'll go from one to three. So, yeah, yeah, and I just meant more like it's it's a weird thing in terms of you're doing the quick levels, the low levels in this the city that really overall has little to do with the, the rest yeah, of Yeah, that's it. true too. Yeah, and that probably goes back to the, the comment that was made earlier about how people just really love Baldur's Gate and wish there was more of it. Um, but you really, the Baldur's Gate is almost tangential to the story as a whole, right? I mean, thematically, it's sort of, um, it, it's sort of, if anyone here watches The Good Place, uh, I can't read Baldur's Gate without seeing Kristen Bell saying, Oh, this is the bad place, <laughs> right? Because it is it is a trash fire, guys. Like it, it is a a gloriously well written, absolute trash fire of a city. Yes, I am. I am so in love with the gazetteer section, but oh my god, this place is terrible. <laughs> Now, Ishmael, you mentioned that uh, it's Mortlock that's the first brother. Um, you mentioned yes. that in your when you ran it, Mortlock sort of talked about how his family was going to doom uh, Baldur's Gate and and it's going to be the next El- Elturel and all that. Is that is that running him as he's described in 
the book or is that you adding that connective tissue, which I think actually helps a lot. <laughs> so, um, well, and uh, let me see. I'm just going to pull my book off the shelf here for a second. Yeah, I'm, but I'm yes, flipping I remember. It. I remember reading like explicitly uh, where like, okay, what does he say? Because he's going to squeal like a stool, pil- stool pigeon, which he did. Um, and I just want to look at the section real quick because, uh, yeah, you find him and he basically like t- says everything. He gives away the game. So it's not a guessing game anymore. It's, um, let's see, I'm looking... But he doesn't really. He doesn't, I mean, the only place where it mentions Elturel is that um, she, his mother, helped convince um, the head of the Flaming Fist to go off to Elturel right before it disappeared. Um, it's not real explicit, like that he's going to spill the beans that it, Baldur's Gate's going to be the next Elturel. Somebody needs to go stop them, right? At least it didn't seem yeah, explicit gosh. to me. Maybe I made that up. Did I just? Did my brain just do that? It might have. Oh no. Yeah, it's right here. If she gets her way, Baldur's Gate will share share Elturel's fate and get dragged dead down oh, into the nine house. Okay. So yeah, that's like top of page twenty six next to his uh, his um, yep. stat block. I see it now. Yeah, that, and that's a really important line that I completely missed. So there's your connective tissue that I that I didn't yeah. see before. Um, um, so so that helps a lot. Mention, notice that, Tracy. I was just gonna say it points out one thing that I did notice reading through the whole thing. Um, and it starts in the Boulders Gate area that there are a lot of s- small details and also just trying to remember what the state of things were. Like, there's a lot of, if this character happens to be with you, then this thing also right. happens. or And just stuff like that that can be uh, having a little bit way, a good way of remembering that info would be useful. Yeah, and there's a few... Um, the adventure has a decent number of, like, exposition NPCs to, to travel around with you through much. I mean, that's, that's sort of an unintentional theme of, of the adventure as well. Wouldn't you say? Yes. yes. So, so through Baldur's gate, you have, um, you have, was it Raya Mantlemorn joins them at some point, uh, And she can give you a lot of sort of the exposition and what's going on. Um, eventually you work your way through um, those two locations and then go to the the villa right of of the family of the van thamper family something like that did i say it right yes. that that's i'm pretty sure that's how you say it too because okay. that's how i've been saying it okay uh so eventually you go to the villa you discover that they have this this dungeon underneath where they're doing all these horrible wicked things and they're you know surprisingly nobles in Baldur's gate are bad people um but that they've also stolen the the shield of the hidden lord, which contains the the essence of Gargoth, and you manage to find the infernal puzzle box, and those are really the bits that are important there. Uh, but then you run into another expositionary NPC in the dungeon who's like, "Oh, hey, you've got this infernal puzzle box. I happen to know somebody who can help you open that. Uh, let's go to Candlekeep, right?" Yes. Um. And then they then you head off to Candlekeep and you get that little uh, Candlekeep's a neat place and, and and whoever said before that there's an element of them trying to draw in the people who played the video games I think there's an element of that here as well right because you start in Candlekeep in the video game yeah, yeah I, I think that definitely applies um, I do like that they've changed. Candlekeep a little bit. Uh, does anybody know in previous editions what the cost to get into Candlekeep was? A uh, book that they didn't have in their library, isn't that right? That's what it is now. 
Okay, so is that is that different? I, I believe it used to be at least. I remember back from like the second edition days. It was a book of at least like ten thousand gold piece value. Whoa. It's like that is really hard to get. Who who's hanging out in Candle Keep? You know. So, uh, but yeah. So a, a new original book is much easier to to put together, right? Hey, I wrote this, uh, you know, literally one of them is like, hey, I've got this book of recipes. You don't have any book that has this combination of recipes. I'm in. Uh, and so you go to Kindle Keep, you meet the, the, um, the next ex- exposition NPC who's the expert in, in the hells and unlocks the infernal puzzle box. And it has a copy of the, the, um, the devilish, the infernal contract that has doomed Elturel. Uh, written by Thavius Krieg, who was an NPC who was running El Terrell and you found in the dungeon of the Van Thampers. Am I right so far? Yes. Okay. Um, and then she's like, okay, uh, so you need to go and deal with this thing with El Terrell. It's in hell, and I can't send you there uh, right now, but I'll send you to a friend of mine who can totally plane shift you there. Uh, yep. And, okay. and her friend is real weird. <laughs> her friend is real weird. Because uh, he was polymorphed into, what was it? An otter. An, an otter. otter. He's polymorphed into an otter and just decided he liked it and <laughs> stayed that way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, wouldn't you? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> they get to it, float on their backs and hold hands with their friends all the time. But and swim in the river all day. <laughs> And they have those human, those little human-like hands, so we can still cast spells, apparently. Exactly. <laughs> look, it takes all kinds. Is all we're trying to say. Well, and, and look, he... look in the realms. In the realms, you can just be your fursona. It's just a thing. <laughs> that's right. That's why we love the realms. <laughs> yes, that's why. <laughs> I not a life judge. <laughs> Hashtag otter life. Is that what you said, Tracy? <laughs> oh, God. I just realized that he's actually Harry Otter. Oh, my no. God. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> hanging, hanging out with this otter wizard uh, who's going to plane shift them to, um, to Avernus uh, is are the major, the main sort of exposition NPC of the entire adventure, uh, which is Lulu, the cute little golden-furred um, flying elephant, miniature flying elephant. Holyfont. Holyfont, yes, is the, is the name of the creature. But they're basically little flying elephants with golden fur and feathery wings. Um, and, and Lulu, in particular, is an important NPC because... She was Zeriel's steed, Zeriel being the lord of the first layer of hell, um, but has since conveniently lost all of her memories. And so she's the the major exposition NPC, but it's very specifically designed in such a way that she only, she's breaking her exposition up. She's remembering certain things as she goes along uh, and slowly dribbling out the exposition instead of just talking for, for an entire three-hour session uh, when they first meet her. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, um, she – I mean – it, it, it is totally like a like a plot 
like uh, kind of a oh, what is the word I'm looking for? It's uh, it's cliche that she's got uh, uh, amnesia, but I like the way they did it. She did get splashed from water uh, that that came from the river sticks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it is an awfully convenient device for just being able oh, yeah. to to dribble out exposition slowly over time. I mean, it's a really nice little um, sort of uh, Bioware-style nod of, well, you're going to have a series of distinct conversations with this NPC where you've hit a new quest goal and you unlock the next conversation. Like, I'm playing through Mass... uh, Sorry, through uh, uh, Playscape Torment Enhanced Edition right now, and not going to lie, it's crazy satisfying. (laughs) <laughs> it is super, super satisfying. Sure, it's a cliche. On the other hand, that shit works, guys. Amazing. <laughs> now, Lulu is a very different sort of character. You know, you're you've been in this dark uh, place that is Baldur's Gate, and you're going to literal hell, which is of course dark. You know, um, but then you've got this cute little. Always good, always nice, always thinking about other people, miniature flying golden elephant flying around with you in in my head, always with a cutesy little happy voice. Um, you know, <laughs> it's basically, it, it, she, I, I almost picture her like a, like a Care Bear, right? Uh, <laughs> how, how do we feel about, about that, adding that elements of, of cutesy to such a dark sort of story? It's a nice contrast because, you know, it's really easy to let yourself become kind of wrapped up in the fact that like, oh, this is hell. Everything sucks. Uh, There's suffering and and murder everywhere around every corner or what have you. Um, So I think it was a nice touch. Um, uh, Like, you know, I'm definitely intending to play her very upbeat, very happy. Like, you know, uh, if you've ever had that coworker that has never not had a smile on their face. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I think I'm going to, um, uh, like as, as the character takes form in my brain, I think I'm also almost going to play her like Unikitty from the Lego movie. <laughs> uh-huh. Has anybody seen the, the Lulu stuffed animal? <gasps> no. I've seen pictures of it, but I have not it's, actually like. It's part of the Beetle and Grimm uh, Platinum Edition box. Um, which Tracy and I are going to be reviewing later. Um, we both got boxes um, using some some Tome Show funds so that we can sort of tell people what what these Platinum Edition boxes are about. But I'm I'm kind of looking forward to when I run this adventure. Every time Lulu talks, I, I hold up the little stuffed animal oh and she dances God. around. You know? <laughs> that's amazing. That uh, that's incredible. I'm yeah. I'm so here for it. So, just, so I wish I wish there was some way to get it without spending hundreds of dollars. <laughs> well, there's that. Uh, I just so, saw a picture of it and I would die for it. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, so my take is is much the same. Um, my my feeling on the rest of the adventure is that Baldur's Gate is crushingly depressing, and then Elturel is literally a war zone, mm. and then you go to hell, and so like you really need. Um, so, some moments of, of levity and contrast just to make it bearable. But also, Lulu is a big part of the stakes of the adventure. Mm-hmm. Because, like, 
if you lose, Lulu is part of what you lose. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's interesting. Um, and, and like, I, I really feel that a lot of this adventure needs a, a real serious conversation with your, your gaming group about the kind of mood that you're trying to create and sustain and frankly mm-hmm. live with for the duration of the adventure because like th- things are bad y'all things are real bad and like uh, sustaining that through cutesy moments um m- might take some skill and some s- some finesse but i do think that things like lulu and uh harry otter and <laughs> <laughs> some of the some of the quirkier encounters in Avernus um, are, are really necessary. Mm. It's sort of like some of the the little um, cutesy or over the top jokey things they added into Curse of Strahd, right? It's such a dark, depressing story and setting that it's it's important to have those moments of levity to break it up and to juxtapose. Yeah. I mean, if you if you play. The, the rules of Avernus with all of the horrible options turned on, uh, you're on a, a real brutal timer just to not be the bad guys by the end of it. So it, it's it's real bad. Well, and that brings up a good point because you mentioned that, that it's worth having a conversation with your players if you're running this adventure about what the mood of the story is. What is the mood of the story? Uh, what 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 are you going to convey to them? So to me, the mood is about um, pervasive threat and misery. Um, the the intro chapter of the book that describes life in the nine hells uh, really hammers on that with such headers as everyone's unhappy, everything's awful, paradise lost. I mean, it's laying it right out there for you. Yeah. At the same time, though, I think if you just hit them with, look, we're going into a story where everything just sucks all the time, uh, which it does. They should be prepared for that. But I also think it's important to – and the reason I asked this question was I think it's important to point out to them that there are opportunities to rise above. Because because if they don't see those opportunities and they're not reaching for those opportunities – I think the whole narrative falls apart real fast because then why are they doing any of this stuff? Why are they even bothering when they could just be grasping for power like everybody else? You know, I would agree with that, and I'd say that um, a big part of it is whatever hope there is, you have to bring with you. Hmm. Like the setting is not going to give you hope; it is here to destroy your hope. And that hope, hope is named Lulu. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The setting is trying to kill her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that. Go ahead, oh, Hideo. Yeah, I was. I was just going to say. I, I think uh, it's interesting because the setting elements, right? So Baldur's Gate and Avernus are so well fleshed out. We have the the gazetteer on Baldur's Gate. There's so much information about different locations in Avernus and how to run Avernus. The setting pieces themselves. Uh, are obviously very dark, like we've been saying, and I can totally see a group with a DM who's sort of very willing to go pretty far off script. I can see this being a great starting off point for an evil adventure, for a party of evil adventures. Um, because you can very easily get to Avernus, meet, you know, go to Fort Knucklebone, meet Mad Maggie, learn about the warbands, and decide to start your own warband and suddenly have a very right. different adventure. And this this book, which I think is great, sort of gives you all the tools to do that. 
Um, so again, super important to have that conversation about tone and to make sure that players and DM are on the same page about, you know, is the goal to really like do this story or is the goal a little more freeform? Are we comfortable sort of starting with this story and maybe going elsewhere? All important conversations before mm -hmm. you sort of dig too far in. I definitely agree with that. I like that the, um, the last chapter of the adventure section, um, does have a brief discussion of, well, what if you decide that your new job is not aiding Zariel, but displacing Zariel, and also telling Bell to shove it. Right, and just basically taking over as the new lord of the first layer of hell. Right. Which they presented in a few ways. Like, you could totally try to just be the new first lord, uh, the layer of, lord of the first layer of hell, or you could also do it as, well, we're going to take over so we can sort of break down the hellish hierarchy from the inside. Um, and, and, and all those are interesting and very long-reaching <laughs> uh, goals that the, the adventure sort of sets you up like, this could totally be a thing that happens, and good luck, you know? <laughs> Go do it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, that, I, I wanted to talk about that last chapter, but let's quickly run through the, the in-between bits. So you end up getting to El Torel, um, it's it's flying on an earth moat, basically, or two earth moats, actually, because it's split in half, uh, connected by two bridges. And, of course, you're on the wrong side of the city, and you have to get to the other side where the leaders are and where the people are, are uh, you know, finding refuge. And so you have to fight your way there. Uh, you get to the leaders. Uh, you kind of find out what's going on. Um, and, and it is recommended, basically, that you... Um, head to to this Mad Maggie person who's at Fort Knucklebone. Uh, Mad Maggie is... Um, it's not a coincidence that Mad Maggie sounds a little bit like Mad Max, right? That's where you have the opportunity to, to find some more information. You get your... You can possibly get your Infernal War Machine, which, so far as I can tell, is a cool thing that kind of sort of thematically fits in with Avernus, uh, but mostly is a really convenient and fun trope to get from place to place on Avernus quickly. Uh, because walking through hell sounds like it would be a boring adventure. Is that a, a, a description that other people agree with? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, there, there are so only so many. There are only so many random encounters walking through Avernus and seeing demons fight devils and so on and so forth that you can do, considering all of the traversing that you have to do. Right, and and I, I mean, I remember um, what is it, Out of the Abyss, where there were <laughs> moments of thirty, forty days of walking through the abyss and random encounters and realizing, oh. I did that once, and it took an entire session to go from one place to another place. <laughs> and I'm like, that was kind of that was kind of boring. I don't want to do that again, you know. Yeah. Um, As we talk about a couple of the issues that a couple of us have had with this, I'm reminded of Out of the Abyss in a couple of ways. Uh, connective tissue between the halves of Out of the Abyss was felt to me sort mm -hmm. of similarly weak uh, between the Baldur's Gate part and, and the Avernus part in this one. And yes, the traveling is is always a thrilling ten sessions. But the the traveling isn't so bad if you're on a giant infernal war machine. Well, and they and also provide other ways too, right? Um, because they said that because uh, it keeps reforming itself and making mm. changes to the landscape, that a DM can decide that maybe one way it's two days and then the way back it's a couple hours. Right. 
And, and that's pretty consistent, although it makes it really ironic how much the adventure plays with the idea of, here, pull out this map and show them the map. You know, it's, it's, it's very much about uh, – there's an element of it that's very much about cartography in a world where nothing stays in the same place. Right. It well, reminded me – I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say it reminded me a little bit of um, in one of the more recent Muppets movies where you travel by map. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody was going to say something? Was that Ishmael? Oh, yeah, sorry. I was just going to say um, that that might be like another one of those weird but maybe creative juxtapositions where you have the map, but it doesn't mean anything. Uh, you just know that there's a point A and a point B, and the space in between is malleable. Um, and I think they've, they had mentioned that. I don't know if it was on a tweet that I saw, but they're like, yeah, you know, you can, you can show them where it is on the map, and the distance between them doesn't have to make any uh, significant sense. I think Chris uh, Perkins like, talked about it on on the Dragon Talk a little bit at one point too. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, and and that works. Although there are uh, there are a few instances where like the map actually matters a decent amount. Like um, there's, I think there was the the portals that you can actually drive your war machines through. Um, that you get where you need to go basically by pointing to the area on the map because you've never been there before, so you don't know. But if you've got the map, you can sort of think about it and point at it, and it'll take you where you want to go. Um, so there's some elements like that where the map matters. Plus, the map talks. It has little weird cryptic messages for every place that you go uh, to, oh to give you kind of a heads up about what's going on. Um, so anyway, you get to, you get to Mad Maggie, um, and, and then it just sort of becomes a, a chain of MacGuffins, right? And where um, Lulu thinks she remembers where to go to get Zeriel's sword. You figure out that if we get Zeriel's sword, we can use that to cut the chains and free Elturel, or we can do all things, all kinds of things with it. Lulu wants to use it to try to redeem Zeriel. Um, but then the first place that you go is not actually the place that you needed to go. But you meet some of the old Hell Riders that have been cursed that, that used to be on Angel's aerial side, but now have been converted to working for Demon or Devil's aerial. Um, and then Lulu's like, "Oh no, no, no! Never mind. Now I know how to find it <laughs> because I've got more memories <laughs> conveniently." Um, and you have two paths. Pick one: Path of Demons or Path of Devils. Uh, or you can kind of do do either, both of them at the same time, it seems, uh, and jump around, and that that would work as well because they're all, most they're they're location keyed, right? And but most both of those are also like, well, go here, and then that will lead you to the and this person might know something. Okay, well, let's go talk to this person. Oh, I don't know anything, but go talk to this person. So you go talk to that person, and oh, I don't know anything, but go talk. And it's sort of a chain of that <laughs> in in both paths in different ways, right? Mm-hmm. I'm curious at what point the players st- start getting tired of hearing that the princess is in another castle. <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, adjusting the presentation of that so that, I don't know, you're actually learning something and have a, a sense that you're getting closer and not just getting a, a constant succession of bait-and-switch responses mm. might really help. Um, I mean, my read of the whole thing is that um, the text is actually trying pretty hard to do things to uh, vary up the travel log in the persons of the warlords of um, right. of Avernus. Right? Um, they're trying to make sure you have, you know, all of these different 
um, small groups that you might worry about fighting or you might try to ally with. And then you also have the the traveling market kind of thing mm-hmm. as just, um, okay, you have to go from point A to point B, but the thing that happens along the way is not going to be so much a meaningless random encounter, but maybe the next step in a non-locational story. Mm. That's a good point. Like, I, I think they're trying to solve something there. I think that they they work at explaining it, but it's really different from what we're used to seeing. And so hitting the mark may or may not have happened. And, you know, uh, responses are going to vary from one reader to the next, right? Well, and this, this adventure is interesting as well because – because of the what you're describing, right? You've got these these various bits and pieces that can fit together and, and add these different things to the setting. But the story is kind of presented as it's it's basically it's a linear, it's almost a, a railroad with with two two divergent tracks at one point that come back together. Um, but it may not feel that way because of the things that you're describing. There's this other stuff that's not presented in that linear way where you might just throw in, you know, an encounter with a warlord over here. You might have a visit to the market over there. And all of that stuff serves to break up that linearness that it doesn't feel so linear. Yeah. It's just, it's just still presented in a linear way. And and it makes the the organization of the book interesting because it's just sort of a, here's a bunch of stuff. Now here's the story. And then, and then it ends on the last chapter, which – and then here's a bunch of stuff again because who knows how it's going to end. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, Tracy? It also felt like it was – and I know we talked about this a little bit when we talked about the dark secret part. Um, make it so that you could play it multiple times and not have the same exact story mm-hmm. each time. Yeah, absolutely. It gives you a little bit of, of replayability. Does anybody have a preference in terms of the path of the devils or path of the demons that you think is more interesting? Uh, in at my table, I've got um, one. Like no, actually, I think I have two tieflings um, and a celestial, and I think that they're going to probably pick something that's more meaningful for them. So I don't know what that is yet. <laughs> um, and so I'm, I'm excited to see how that how they're going to play with that. Um, it, this is all for Adventures League, and so there was a lot of uh, incentive to play a Tiefling and or a Samar uh, at the table. And so I think they did that a little bit purposefully so that people would kind of like have that buy-in without knowing that they had the buy-in because it was kind of a stealth uh, option. But I'm, I'm eager to see where they take it, and I'm not I'm not going to pick a favorite because I know if I do, then they're going to pick the one that. I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) My group is going to bounce back and forth between them a little bit. We're starting uh, our whole story's different and that's not for this episode, but we're going to start at the beginning of these paths and they're actually, uh, I've sort of tied them together and they're going to bounce back and forth. I will say looking at them side by side, I prefer the path of demons. Uh, It starts with the spawning trees, which is where you find abyssal chickens and really those have to be in this story. (laughs) Um, I also, I love the Crypt of the Hellriders on the Path of Demons. I think that was a super cool sort of mini story and series of events. Um, Mm. also you're dealing with devils throughout the course of, you know, all of your movements between things on Avernus. So being able to remind your players that the blood war is going on in ways other than, oh, look down the way is another battle. They're clashing, but you can actually have them interact with some of the demons that are on Avernus, um, is kind of cool. 
I definitely see the draw of the Path of Devils because you get to interact with Archon, which to me is stressful because, you know, Archon to me is like an actual character that like would make real choices that I don't get to make for him. So that's (laughs) sort of weird for me. Uh, But I can definitely see that being a draw for some people uh, who are a fan of Joe and his character and his, his story through all that. Well, and that's the story. That's the the path that to me feels a little bit less like um, the princess is in another castle because you actually go to the person at the beginning that can help you. Um, but they're like, well, I'll help you, but I'm currently cursed and you have to help me, you know, break out of my prison and then and then I will help you. And And so it's a little less go from place to place, except that then after that, it's go from place to place in order to um, in order to break the curse right it's just a different sort of uh hopping around although i do on one hand i like that one and you get to meet archon and you get to meet um you get to interact with tiamat and all that kind of stuff which which is fun and interesting on the other hand the other path you get to have the cameo from morden canaan which has yeah, now that was super exciting yeah has now had uh major um cameos in Two adventures plus Curse had his own, plus had his own book, yeah. Curse of Strahd, this yeah. book, and yes. then like Morden Kanan, the big wizard of Greyhawk, has shown up more than Elminster, who's the big wizard of the Forgotten Realms, where we play all these adventures, right? And I don't yes. think Morden Kanan showed up in the Greyhawk book. Well, he, I don't think he was in Salt Marsh. Marsh? No, I don't think he was. Yeah, I mean, not that I don't <laughs> think he has any ties to that region, but it's worth noting. Yeah, <laughs> I was um, trying to. Yeah, I was trying I to think. Think, Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I was just, Kanan, so go no, I was just going to say, I, I think I, I did some math with, with my oldest son. We were talking about it earlier today. And I'm like, I think Morden Kanan has shown up more in fifth edition books than any other NPC character. And then I got to the point where, no, that's not exactly true because um, Dernan is at least gets named or has cameos in at least three books. Uh, Xanathar might as well, because there's a whole book named after him. There's a few characters that have showed up three different times, but, but nobody more than three. Well, now Archon has one to count on him. Uh, the only other thing I was going <laughs> to say about that is um, the Archon Tiamat part of the Path of Devils feels... Uh, if you have a group that that has a particular playstyle, that feels sort of ha- dangerous. Uh, it feels like a section that could very easily get out of hand. You know, mm. they try and uh, they find some clever way to get the hand of Vecna from Archon, or they, uh, God knows what they can do when they're interacting with a god, even if it's through intermediaries. Like right. that one definitely has the feel of like mm, we're going to really send this off the rails and, well, and the shark and, and all the, of the other phrases. And that's the path that goes like goes crazy. Like they don't have Morning Cannon on that path, but they've got the hand of Vecna. They've got an orb of dragon kind they've got you know yeah. t- having conversations with tiamat like there's some like the dorg of, I, i'm we're we're reading the the first book from Dragonlance right now for a book club for next week uh so the orb of dragon dragon kind is on my mind and and then and then you've got the hand of vecna which is also on my mind from things and so there's a lot of like big deal sort of iconic things in that path mm-hmm. um, i mean you also chill out with bell for a while so there's that and you also chill out with bell yeah. for a while yeah <laughs> Yeah, I just imagine him like Fat Thor. <laughs> fat <Right>. Thor. <laughs> fat Thor. <laughs> well, right. It's it's called Taco Bell for a reason, guys. Yeah. 
so after you go through one of those two paths, eventually it leads you to the location of the Sword of Zeriel. And by then you're, yes, yeah, Tracy pointed out, by then you're level 11, right? And you go through the, 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 a bunch of, uh, what are they, demons that are trying to get in? Or they're both demons and devils. I think it's demons that are trying to get they're in, to, and devils are trying to stop them. Well, and the demons are trying to dig out the big demon that um, is buried right. there. Right, right, right. Uh, and so there's that going on. And so you're running into demons and devils, but you can get in because you're not all horrible and evil. Or at the very least, Lulu can help, hopes. help you get in, right? <laughs> right. Um, which is can where... I say... Yeah. That whole section, I, I mean... <laughs> I won't go into too much detail here because I'm sure some people won't want to hear it. But like one of the subsections of chapter four is called the scab, the descriptions mm-hmm. and the, the mm-hmm. just this whole chapter or that whole section of the chapter is so vivid. And if you have a group that's willing to sort of go there, if you have a group that you could totally switch out and play shadow of the demon Lord with like, <laughs> there's some, yeah. there is some real opportunity uh, when you get to the bleeding citadel in this chapter to really just, uh, you know, yeah. sort of get the gross factor into your game's tone. It hit me just how gross it was when it described that um, there's blood or gore or whatever uh, pouring down from a hole or a tear in the ceiling. Yes. And, and you can Ugh. you can stop it by casting, like, cure Heel. wounds. Yeah. Um. <laughs> like, oh, oh that's Whoa. real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so so eventually you can get you get in, and this is where I think Brandis had mentioned, uh, or maybe it was Ishmael. Somebody mentioned the idea that Lulu is one of the stakes uh, that you can lose Lulu as well. Um, and my uh, my original thought was, well, you kind of can, but whether you lose her or not, once you get to the Sword of Zeriel, she's coming back, right? Uh, because either she traveled with you all the way to the Citadel or the adventure describes she's just there. Like if if she was with you before and died, now she just showed us shows up at the at the Citadel because the narrative needs her and there's not really a good explanation for why now suddenly she's around, right? Yeah, I didn't mean so much that her death is the stakes. I meant her despair is the stakes. Okay. But I did find it interesting that that there's just sort of a and then she comes back, you know. Because we need her to be back. <laughs> so, um, Because in order to get the Sword of Zeriel, you have to go through a whole series of encounters, which is um, the ghost of Yale, who, who was the, the lieutenant or the general or whatever that hid Zeriel's sword, um, sort of puts you into one of Lulu's visions or dreams, and you get to sort of go through that vision of Zeriel battling the demons um, in the Forgotten Realms way back in the day, uh, right before she took the hordes of Hellriders into Avernus. Um, And you get to sort of go through that, and you have to survive these waves, and anybody who sort of survives the waves of of this vision, of this memory, um, is allowed to to claim the sword. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was a, an interesting sequence mm-hmm. of like a way for you to really get to know Zeriel and her whole deal in a, in a concentrated way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I like a good vision quest personally. Well, and it's, I mean, the cliche there would have been there's some big bad guardian or whatever, and you have to defeat the guardian and then you get the sword, right? This was way more meaningful and interesting. I really appreciate the way they did that. I agree. That's hella cool. 
And then and then somebody claims the sword, and and there's sort of a, a statement of if you claim the sword, you will get the sword, but you'll lose yourself, right? And that's because one of the properties of the sword is it changes you into sort of a a lawful good celestialized, idealized version of yourself. Uh, and so it changes sort of who you are as a, at, at some level. On the other hand, it's not like you completely lose yourself. You just become this new version of you, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's a pretty classic feature of um, celestial weaponry, I, I, I think, in, uh, in fiction. Better living through swords. Yeah, better living through swords. Well, and, and, it, <laughs> and it kind of hints at the possibility of redemption, which is what Lulu really wants here. Lulu wants them wants you to claim the sword and take it to Zeriel and hopes that the same effect happens to Zeriel and you're able to convince her to to change her ways and stop being a, an archdevil. Um, and that's one of the paths that it can go. That last chapter, that chapter five, uh, the escape from Avernus uh, chapter, is another interesting one. I wasn't really sure how I felt about it because everything, like so much of this adventure is set up in a very sort of go from step A to step B to step C to step D. And then all of a sudden you get to chapter five and it's like, well, here are the things that need to be accomplished. And here's a handful of ways that this could go and some things to help you out to get there. Uh, and good luck, right? <laughs> On the other hand, at this point, if you've gotten to that chapter, nobody who's DM'd a group to that chapter is a is a, a beginner DM anymore, right? You've I gone could. through a lot. <laughs> and so maybe it's okay to give them a little more free form, but there's a lot of like advice. And actually, I would say that's true through much of the book. There's a lot of places where they're like, hey, here's some DMing advice that would help you sort of deal with this. You know, do, do it the way you want. It's not a rule, but here's some ways that you could think about things. And that's really all that chapter is, is just a lot of, Here's some kind of stuff that you can think about. Here's some events you could throw in, some ways they could, you know, break the chain, some ways they could um, get Elturel back, or some what can some of what can happen if they choose not to do any of that with Elturel. Um, so yeah, I was wondering what other people's experience was with that last chapter. I started off not liking the format and then came around to it by the by the time I got about halfway through. Um, I think the chapter is really acknowledging all the different. Uh, possible outcomes. It's sort of a, a big collection of uh, if-then checkboxes to parse. Yeah, I think for for an adventure that we've already said we feel like is a little railroady with you know two diverging paths that come back together, uh, this certainly has the potential to really make your players' choices count. Uh, because there are so many different possible permutations of how the story mm. ends, which, which you know, is nice. It's a, in addition to getting to choose demons or devils for the paths, it's a good way to remind your players that they do in fact have agency in in the story that you're telling. Yeah, and in, 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 in honesty, like I don't, there's not a lot of adventures that I think do this, right? We've seen some adventures where they do sort of the sandboxy part in the middle. Right. Um, you know, Storm King's Thunder does a lot of that. Uh, a lot of them, a lot of the adventures have this sort of sandboxy part in the middle. But at the end, the story ends in a certain way. Um, this is the first time that their sandbox really hits at the end, where it's like, okay, you went through all of this. All right, what are you going to do? There you go. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but you get the good ending, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> right, exactly. Now we have to play through it over and over again to try to get all the endings <laughs> to see what all the endings are. <laughs> Guys, it's just Mass Effect 2. It's just Mass Effect 2. I was going to say it's got a certain Bioware-esque quality to it. Huh. 
Well, I can. That's it. Because Bioware is the people that did the Baldur's Game video games, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Tracy, you want to say something? Oh, I was going to say that I think of all the adventures I've read, even across editions, this was the one that most to me felt like it really got that ramp up of what you're doing as you gain all these levels. Like, I know we had it in some of the other ones, but because there is actually a lot of story there and a lot of choices, and then the choices influence the story later, as hard as it is sometimes just to do the read-through and, you know, maybe sometimes to think in advance how you would, it would play out at the table, I, I think there's actually, like, some really good, interesting stuff there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. All right, so we've reached the point where we've gone over time, uh, as we do. Um, but I want to give people a chance to sort of any last thoughts, anything that I, I, I usually make somebody else do the sort of walkthrough on the adventure, and I did it this time, and it's way too much talking. I don't know why you guys put up with that for me. Uh, <laughs> uh, so um, I'm curious, though, last thoughts. What are some things that you wanted to, to talk about or to mention with this adventure that hasn't come up yet? I think overall, it's a really exciting first look into an outer plane, into somewhere else. Um, I think, you know, the pieces, I, I've said this before already, but the pieces of it, right, the Gazetteer, the description of Baldur's Gate, and then the toolbox that it gives you for Avernus, even if you're not going to run the adventure, are are really fun and really exciting and for the most part pretty well uh, written and 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 handled mechanically so that you can use those to create your own stories, which, you know, we always want. Um People may disagree. I I feel like this is not an adventure. Now, look, I don't ever want to tell somebody that they can't DM something because they don't have the experience, right? That's not the point. Anybody can tell a good story. I think this adventure has some more complex uh, things to deal with, right? There are so many things to keep track of. There are so many if-then statements throughout. Um, There is, you know, they didn't sandbox in the middle, but there's a lot of like, well, you can make this travel as long as you want or as short as you want, and maybe you'll run into these three people on the way. There's a lot of that sort of fiddly stuff that doesn't feel like, uh, how do we say it? It doesn't feel like I don't even want to say beginner DMing. I'm trying really hard to be to say this the right way <laughs> without discouraging people from discouraging anybody, no matter what experience level you are, from running it. It does feel like there are some things that are a little, uh, you know, uh, intermediate theory. It is not lightweight. Well, that's right. that sure. said. I mean, I I don't disagree with you, but I'm going to disagree a little bit because sure, yeah. I feel like as Tracy pointed out, like it, it, it in the ways that the narrative ramps up, I feel like the DMing um, needs sort of ramp up nicely as well. Um, you know, there, there, so long as as an early DM, you can get a, a cooperative group and that, that maybe weaker connective tissue in that first chapter comes together, uh, as long as that happens, uh, I think it ramps up the, the difficulty in terms of DMing slowly over time. And I think it throws in a lot of sort of tips and tricks um, within the the text. So I think if you read the text thoroughly, um, there'll be a lot of things there to help you figure out how to run this as as even a beginner DM, um, sure. which is part of why the lack of connective tissue in that first chapter chafes even more because there's yeah. such good advice later on. Why didn't they do that as much in that chapter? But Yeah, and you know, I, I, as you said it, I sort of thought about what I, what it actually means to say – you know, who can run this adventure? How easy is it to run this mm-hmm. adventure? And and I suppose uh, for for those of us who have some knowledge of the lore of the planes and of this and of that, I guess maybe uh, 
what I in my head thought was required as I said that now I realize is, is not because really you could just you could run the path straight as it is and mm-hmm. you know not worry too much about travel distances and things like that and you're right there are a lot of DM tips as you go through to help ramp that up so so I I a little bit retract my statement although I will say <laughs> there is the opportunity for sure for this to be a, a really complex really oh, well yeah. fleshed out really dense adventure and I, and I think that's exciting for our first trip out. Although I still think material. I still think they've published some other adventures with that are DMing on harder mode than this. DMing on harder mode for sure. Yeah. That that sort of tie together and wrap up is nicely. Maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Um, I think the try, trying to build off on some of that. I would love to see a group of teenagers run this mm. I, that knew each other well and honestly didn't care how it went and were just willing to go with things and dig the Mad Max or just the zaniness of some of the uh, effects you can get just by being in the, in Avernus for a while, mm-hmm. like your hair suddenly turning colors and role playing that out and <laughs> skin turning blue, uh, food all tastes horrible. Yeah. We didn't even talk about some of that stuff. <laughs> There's a lot in this book. Man. <laughs> okay. Any other last thoughts or, or so, things you want to bring up? Brandis? So I think that, um, We've covered the adventure really well, but there's some additional supporting material in this book yeah. that just deserves a standing ovation on its own. Oh my goodness. Uh, Appendix A, Diabolical Deals, is phenomenal. Um, Appendix B, Infernal War Machines, let's do it. I, like This is your real Mad Max chapter in terms of the nuts mm-hmm. and bolts. Right? It's, it's so good. Um, even if, as may have been discussed in Twitter... There could be a little more help given on um, exactly how you repair these bad boys. Um, <laughs> Are you talking about my conversation that. earlier today? <laughs> yes, I am. That would be exactly. Uh, and then the infernal rapture menu, the story concept art. Um, like oh. These are these are beautiful, beautiful chapters. Just there's so much interesting stuff here to to support DMs in. Maybe not, you know, getting a a beginner up to intermediate so much as elevating an already good GM's content, right? Um, like the Infernal Rapture menu is sort of uh, maybe you don't need that, but maybe it's a really fun thing. It's a fun little to, handout to help you feel the whole thing as a GM, mm-hmm. right? To have some of those props that you see, some of the, you know, the. The big fancy streamers out there throwing out <laughs> streamers, <Yeah. laughs> um, you know, and you get some of these those sort of built in, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I agree. I had a whole section I wanted to, you know, a whole question I was going to bring up all these different appendices and backgrounds and and the gazetteer and all that, and we're at, at, at over an hour and almost fifteen minutes now already. So, oh, the, the story concept art is just. Completely out of control. I, mm-hmm. I love it so hard. I, yeah, did you see my uh, – speaking of things that I tweeted today, um, <laughs> did you see that they, – so they have the, the diagram, the picture of uh, Zeriel's flying fortress that sort of moves around Avernus. And it's got a little, a little silhouette. Oh, I did see this. The, the little silhouette of, of a person on it. Um, yes. But it, it's but amazing. It, but it's not listed as a person. It's listed as a perkin. Uh, Perkins, as in, <laughs> as in Chris Perkins from the Wizards of the Coast team. <laughs> so, I thought that was clever. Lots of little fun little things like that. But at the same time, there's uh, 
not just the concept art in the back, but there's a lot. I mean, the art throughout is phenomenal. Um, the I think I felt like the representation through the book uh, of diverse types of characters uh, was pretty well constructed. Um, so, but I'm not the person to be mentioning or, or highlighting whether or not the, there was a good diverse uh, representation because that's not a perspective I'm able to to put, shine much of, as much of a light on. Well, it's appreciated that you pointed out. You know, it's sort of interesting <laughs> talking about talking about that particular uh, aspect of the book when uh, you know four of the chapters take place on a plane where there aren't really humanoid uh, NPCs for the most part, anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's sort of interesting to think, you know, how did they manage to represent uh, diverse people types in mm-hmm. hell? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, um, other other last thoughts people had. I was uh, just going to add a few things, uh, and I'll be super brief, or at least I'll try to be. The dice set that comes with uh, this game is one of the best dice sets I've ever bought because oh. it comes with a bunch of little handouts. It's easily so the best dice set that Wizards has put together yet. Oh my gosh. Oh my god. I hope that they keep doing that forever. That's all I'm going to say about because that. Because it's not just the dice set. It's a dice set, no. but it's also two dice trays, and it's got cards and mm-hmm. maps and all kinds. Oh my gosh, it is fantastic. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. Tracy didn't get the um, dice then, set because I I only got one copy of those and I kept it. But <laughs> I, I, I need um, that infernal war machine, mini guys. I I'm not gonna lie, I oh. need that room. I thought about it. I, I'm still on the fence about it. But the other thing that I was going to say is that there are a lot of contrasts between uh, Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus and Out of the Abyss mm. uh, that they've purposefully drawn. They, they say that uh, Out of the Abyss was kind of like, here's your demons, and uh, uh, Avernus, obviously, here's your devils. But um, what struck me when I was reading through Descent into Avernus was just how fascinating the read was. Um, there was so much of Out of the Abyss where it's like, this is an adventure. You read it as an adventure and you only read it to know how to run it. Whereas Avernus, I was reading it and like every couple of pages, I was like, oh my God. Oh, wow. And that happened? And holy cow. And everything was very interesting to me. And it answered a lot of the questions I had about the the the, the adventure. Whereas Out of the Abyss, I still don't know why... Uh, the demons were summoned into the Underdark. That's true. Well, yeah. I, I can guess. But um, in in Avernus, you know, uh, uh, Zariel uh, felt betrayed by, betrayed by the Hellriders right. way back in the day. And she spun her uh, revenge when she became a devil or an archdevil. And then it's, it's this huge circle and it's fascinating to, to, to look at how everything's connected. And these are the parts that I say um, they don't put in adventures because the players will never find out, like, you know, most of all of that information. But for me, running the game, it's the it's the coolest damn thing I think I've read in a really long time. Right. And it gives me, as a DM, it gives me an insight and a, and a mindset that helps me mm-hmm. lay out that setting. So, Yeah, I felt that the, the prose writing, especially in the Gadgeteer, was just super strong. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Okay, super, it, super any other last thoughts? I had two questions to finish with, but I, I want to make sure everybody else has a chance to speak. Okay, so here are my two questions. One of them I actually asked on Twitter earlier. Uh, so you've got an infernal war machine, and you've got the river sticks running through the the plain, uh, the you know all of Avernus, and you have to go to places on both sides of the river sticks. How does the war machine cross the river? 
This is the kind of stuff that drives me crazy in adventures. There was an old I mean, 3.5 adventure where they're like, here's the location where this part of the adventure takes place, but it's like in the middle of a river on the top of a waterfall and there's no like bridges and how do you get there and there's no boats and it's like, what? But you missed a really important piece, you know? <laughs> I feel the same way about how do I get the Infernal War Machines across the river. When I, mean, I saw that tweet, I had this really pithy answer about like, hopefully it's like a Volkswagen thing and it's amphibious. Um, but the more serious answer is that I'm sure that there's bridges, uh, and that there's like probably a toll that you have to pay, pay the cross the bridge. And then all of a sudden you'll have to pay a soul coin to get across the bridge each time. And that's an additional complication. At least that's how I would do it. Mythologically, there's been the ferry, right? The Caron ferry, but that's, that's, that's a really big ferry to take an entire infernal war machine on. (laughs) What if you get, what if you get one of the celestial creatures that that always floats upwards? Which one are those? Oh god, what part of the adventure is it? It's... I don't know. <laughs> do you mean the Do you mean the Cibriax? Oh, the Cibriax. I can't remember. I just that's remember that's not a celestial a... though. Oh yeah. wait, now I'm trying to think of what you're there thinking. There was of. A, there was a trapped celestial. There, they talked about there are trapped celestial bodies down there of the fallen of some fallen angels or whatnot. Oh, and the wasp nest. Yes. Oh. Because the wasp nest is has changed to keep it down because it would float as buoyancy. Well, the solution yeah. I came up with is that um, in that appendix, what is it, appendix B, where they talk about the, the Infernal War machines, one of the upgrades that you could get is uh, – I'm turning the page right now so I can name it um, – the teleporter. That's an appropriate name, right? Um, where once every 24 hours you could just teleport 300 feet away. I'm like, well, there you go. There. Now I can get across the river. <laughs> Just figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> also, remember the you know if it, it, it's a little bit of a cop out, but remember that the geography of Avernus is is fluid and malleable. So, uh, you know, I, yeah. I understand this is a cop out. You still want to get to the other side of the river, sticks, right? But <laughs> so, but something that's on the other side of the river is still going to be on the other side of the river. <laughs> so, anyway, um, and my other question was, and it just occurred to me as I was preparing uh, the script for this episode. Um, so one of the options at the end of the adventure is that you that Zeriel might be redeemed. Zeriel is a an archdevil because she made a deal with Asmodeus. So if she's redeemed and stops being an archdevil, is she in breach of contract with Asmodeus? And what does that mean? Is she got to give up her soul? I mean, my answer is that. Um... It doesn't matter because the adventure's over. <laughs> no, no, it's that, it's that heaven accepting her uh, overrides a hellish contract. Like she returns to the service of the gods. I mean, so, sorry, they're still more powerful than Asmodeus. Hmm. But that should then that, that that should be true of every petitioner of it, of every god who makes a bad deal. Uh, right, but the reason like, Zariel is still committed to her bad idea up until the point you change her mind. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have the the um, desire to like convert until you lead her to it. Okay. Other thoughts? I I was gonna say um there's been a lot of, of fuss kicked up about um uh, uh, Asmodeus, Asmodeus, however, however you like mm-hmm. to say it, um, that he is kind of the central piece in, in this kind of like celestial bureaucracy. 
important as important as Mechanis, as important as like some of these other really powerful figures. Um, and I would I would imagine that his contracts are not uh, weak uh, or weaker than like Celestials, and that's just my take, obviously. Um, but what I would say is that um, like any devil from Imp all the way up to Asmodeus, there's probably a loophole somewhere, and um, whether uh, you couldn't consider Zariel a whole person because she was missing her sword, which is as much a part of her at that point as as anything. Maybe that's the loophole. Maybe there's some other, like you know, uh, you know, just just think of any uh, law movie, lawyer movie that you've ever seen, and it's always that like little loophole that gets you out of the all the trouble. Um, and so I would have to imagine, like, you know, as as Modius being the ultimate lawyer, that that's probably what it is. There's probably some clause somewhere um, that would freeze Ariel, and it's not just the power of love, but also the power of loopholes. <laughs> there, there is a there is a section in Appendix A which is all about diabolical deals, about voiding contracts, and it mentions that powerful artifacts like the Hand of Vecna and the Sword of Zariel can void contracts. I don't, I don't think it's the sword itself that is voiding the contract in that case, but it does sort of leave the door open f- to suggest that there are controllable powers in the multiverse that are stronger than even the strongest Devil's Deal. Well, and so in my mind. Um... That's absolutely true, but a deal with Asmodeus is not the same as a deal with a normal devil, because this is the god of evil, right? Um, In my mind, what that tells me is if you've redeemed Zeriel, great, now the campaign can continue, right? How are Mm. you going to get Zeriel out of this contract? Um, and, and that suddenly becomes the next like five levels. Let's find the loophole. Let's let's you know break her out of Asmodeus's prison, whatever. And so I think that would be a fun continuation of the adventure. But um, to answer my that own question, that is something I was going to say about the end of this: is how well this dovetails into whatever you want. Not that every adventure can't, but a lot of them feel like they end. And many of the possible endings of this one feel very much like you just said. Like there can very easily be a continuation. It kind of bothered me, and maybe it's common that this happens anyway in D&D, that the entire city could be put under contract, like the people. I, I understand the the land, but um, in it, it says that, that all the people that pledged allegiance to the city, or at least to the leader, um, were, were part of that contract, and I was kind of surprised by that one. Right, that they were allowed to have their souls condemned through no decision of their own. Um, right. Yeah, that's a bit of a... It, that certainly bothers me, but at the point, it's a contrivance that makes the story possible, because without it, how do you get an entire city in hell? You know, sure. It, you know? <laughs> so it's, a, it's, a, it's convenient to the narrative, although definitely problematic, right? Right. And I guess I could say the same thing about the point you brought up then. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, no. Okay. If I think at this point, almost an hour and a half in, we're going to go ahead and call this the end of the episode. We'd like to thank, say thank you to our sponsor, Skull Splitter Dice. Uh, listeners that support the show on, by using our affiliate links with Amazon and DMs Guild, as well as those who support us directly at patreon.com slash the Tome Show, like Jill Sanders, Jeremiah McCoy, and Doug Palmer. Uh, and we'd also like to thank our guest, Ohenio. Uh, where can people find you online? 
Yeah, thanks for having me. You can find me on the Twitters at at DMJazzyHands. You can follow my random thoughts and musings there. I'm the Dungeon Master for the actual play podcast, The Last Refuge, and you can find the show on Twitter at at DNDLastRefuge, and you can grab that podcast wherever podcasts are found. I'm going to be running, like I mentioned, uh, a stream campaign of Avernus starting in Chapter 3, for all intents and purposes, on the Variant Rolls Twitch channel. Uh, And that's going to be Saturday mornings, so Saturday morning D&D from 9.30 to 12.30 p.m. Eastern. And Brandis, where can folks find you? Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. I also write for Tribality. And I have my own blog, which is uh, brandisstoddard.com. Um, I have a Patreon, also Brandis Stoddard. There are some real benefits to having you know, a, a pretty unique name online. So <laughs> I'm going to use all of them. Sweet. And Ismail? Yes. Um, so I can be found primarily as uh, Elven Wizard King on Twitter, um, also on Facebook. And then uh, if you find me on um, DriveThruRPG, I've got a lot of 5th edition uh, products that I've published through Fat Goblin Games and other places. But I've also recently revived my blog at elvenwizardking.wordpress.com, where I have been doing uh, weekly recaps of my Eberron game that I've mm-hmm. been running. Um, so catch that there uh, if, you, if you like. Uh, and those are the places you can find me. I made great use of your uh, Aurora's catalogs uh, in, in Trollskull Manor. I I, oh, nice. I I pulled up anything that they, that might be remotely useful for them in terms of like the furniture and the the whatever, and I just sort of said, "Hey, here's a bunch of stuff that you can get to help you know <laughs> supply and furnish the manor." Um, so that worked out pretty well. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so if you want to get a hold of the show, you can email the Tome Show at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Squatch S Q U A C H. You can find Tracy on Twitter. She is at Sarah Dark Magic. That's Sarah with an H. And you can tweet the show. It is at The Tome Show. And that's episode 328, where we fell from grace, committed countless horrible acts of evil, bargained all your souls for 50 years apiece, and then tried to come back from the darkness in this episode of... The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome. I'm not a